BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I squash your head, Jake. I squash your head. Citizen Kane. It's Citizen Kane. It's Citizen Kane. <laughs> you need to call a mortician. <laughs> oh, it's me, the chicken lady. Oh, oh, I'm so horny. Hi, and I'm Buddy Cole, and I'm going to say words you can't say on television anymore. <laughs> These are the days I know I know. These are the days I know. know. Oh my God. Uh, Finally, finally, a podcast where two elder millennials can just (laughs) exchange comedy bits that they memorized in childhood back and forth to each other. We did it. I loved screaming a bunch of uh, uh, catchphrases that I will be yelling later (laughs) in this show at Jake based on the Kids in the Hall movie Brain Candy, which he had not yet watched. Oh, my God. So completely out of context. When we get to Brain Candy, like, we have to talk about how done dirty this movie was. Holy shit. I know. Every time I come back to it, I watch it, and I'm like, why is this not more beloved and lauded? And it does have cult fame, just like everything with the kids in the hall. I believe it was Bruce McCullough who said it. Uh, you know, everything we touch turns to cult. <laughs> and it just is, the kids in the hall DNA is just inherently cult classic. Everything that they do is just, is perfect for that kind of, that kind of culture, that kind of, uh, you know, that appeal for for a small group of people to get together and all decide that this one very obscure-ish thing, obscure-ish, because I mean, hey, come on, they had a show on HBO, a show, you know, constant reruns on Comedy Central. I mean, they were out there for us to enjoy, but still, uh, you know, obscure-ish, all decide it's hilarious and start quoting it at each other and uh, watching it, uh, you know, uh, over and over. Uh, There's there's a biography of the group uh, released in 2018 called Kids in the Hall, uh, One Dumb Guy, and it's based on this quote from Kevin McDonald that I really think just like nails what it is that they do. Kevin says, I always say that individually, we're all very smart guys, but collectively, we're really just one dumb guy. And I, that like really highlights like what I associate with the kids in the hall. Yeah. Where it's a group of very smart, very talented, very savvy, very daring comedy minds all like coming together and just 
making whatever it is that they laugh at like together. And the end results are some incredibly silly things like just um, just uh, it's just suburban desperation, uh, Canadian foibles, uh, tons of bad fathers and very uh, <laughs> loving portrayals of women. Uh, it's all brought together in this like very weird hodgepodge that I definitely as a younger kid, I wasn't that into kids in the hall. When it was on reruns in Comedy Central, I don't, I mean, I do know exactly what was going on, but like stuff like how all the actors were in drag all the time. And like as a child, like watching this as an actual child, not getting that like, wait, but they're not being funny about the fact that they're dressed as ladies. They're just acting like ladies. I don't understand what's happening or, you know, the references to like French new wave cinema and gay culture and all of these things that I had. Yeah. I mean, Buddy Cole was very alienating to me as a child, for sure. Like I I definitely was every time Buddy Cole popped up, I was like floored by, I I feel like I was being, uh, you know, introduced to a lot of, you know, alternate lifestyle Mm -hmm stuff that I, I in Charlotte, North Carolina, you, you did not in, encounter very It often. is crazy. I, I know it's like weird to, to maybe to younger people listening right now, but like Scott Thompson maybe was like the first gay person mm-hmm. I understood as a homosexual human being like that. Yeah. Like, no, he is a he is a person with this identity and they have, and it's their own culture and their own like traditions and various in jokes. And like, besides just one note punchlines where like somebody has a limp wrist and like dances in a tutu or something. Right. Again, this is like late eighties, early nineties, like just all of this stuff was like revolutionary at the time. Yeah. It was an actual gay person being a, a flamboyant gay archetype but like in a really honest and heartfelt way and that character was based on a real guy you know who who passed away unfortunately very early in his life due to uh the aids epidemic and you know i mean he was like he was kind of honoring that real person in in that character and we'll talk more about buddy cole uh and uh so much in this show but i yeah jake that's interesting to me because you know, I think you noticed, and I think that, you know, the rest of our study session noticed, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, if you'd like to join us for our study session, every Sunday we explore the thing. Yeah, well, real talk, real talk. Hi there, people listening. <laughs> it's me, Jake. Um, if you've come to rely on Wizard and the Bruiser for your infotainment and shenanigans-based enjoyment on your long commute, maybe while washing dishes, or hell, maybe just as a dulcet and also screeching accompaniment to your bedtime routine. Joining the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash whizbrew is the best way to support this show and keep the laughter flowing. This segment was sponsored by the Wizard and the Bruiser Patreon. And everybody noticed while we watched Brain Candy in that watch along that uh, all of my humor comes from... Not it all of uncanny. it. I mean, Mr. Show, certain mm. aspects of SNL, but so much of no, my comedy the, influence is the second. The second we Bruce McCullough 
with his weird just a pill that gives worms extra I invented a pill for the world I think even more so it's monkey gum they take the gum of the, and they make a big fucking bat and a cat fucking dog like my grandmother always said before I went to sleep life is short life is shit and soon it will all be over uh, I mean, it's I, it's 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 a it's, it's a mild mannered, sensitive, uh, well educated young man who is very uh, literate in the arts, imagining a very shitty person and thinking how funny it would be if there was a guy that shit. Yeah, extreme, <laughs> extreme people. And that was what was so great about them. They could play very genuine, like, female characters in, in these characters that I feel like I know at the office, the secretaries, and you know, is the mm-hmm. example I'm thinking of first and foremost. But then they just have these over-the-top you know, uh, Kevin McDonald as um, Buddy Holly in in that sketch. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's where I let the monkey fly the plane. Let the monkey fly. Another monkey in uh, line, by the way. You know, he's just uh. over the top hammered. I'm buff. I'm Buddy Holly, and uh, just so extreme and so fun. And you know, and by the way. This is how like in just wild th- this episode is for me in terms of how just completely inspired I am by it, a part of my life. Like I, at, when I was at the People's Improv Theater in New York, I got to do a show uh, with Kevin McDonald. I got to be in. He wrote like a, a one man show with like sketches and stuff, and I got to like take part in that. Um, uh, you know, I, what else? I mean, I, all these guys, you know, it's Dave Foley, Bruce McCullough, Kevin McDonald, Mark McKinney, and Scott Thompson. I think every single one of these guys uh, have influenced McDonald, me. McKinney, McCullough, the boys we knew back in Ireland. Uh, Bruce McCullough, I mean, all his music stuff, that's all my influence for my made-up song shit. I mean, that's <laughs> all Bruce McCullough. Dave Foley really reminds me a lot of John, of John, who I uh, John Moreno from Murder Fist, who I work love to work with so much, and I feel like every time I watch Dave Foley, I think about John, you know, and it's like just so because John is also the hottest in a wig, yeah. among the Murder Fist group. I mean, Mark, I understand Mark McKinney's character work. I mean, he's the monkey cum guy. Like he, he's <laughs> extreme characters that feel real and believable in this bizarre way. And then of course Scott Thompson. Is is amazing, and that Buddy Cole uh, character is uh, unfairly n- overlooked as really revolutionary. You know, I mean, he really got it from both ends on that character because the gay community had issues with it, and so did, of course, obviously the conservative community. But he was really one of the first guys out there doing it, as you mentioned before. And that's just one of the great things he could do because he had so many good characters. The old lady character in Brain Candy is so tragic and 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 hilarious. He could really nail tragic and funny at once in a way that is like so hard to capture in yes. the bottle. Absolutely. Yeah, I I just I yeah, the, these these are these people are like my gods, like really like in comedy. Like well, they they are 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 um they could be their own Mount Rushmore up there with, you know, Dave Cross and Bob Odenkirk's Mr. Show. And, uh, you know, we talked about Jack Black. I feel like we've been doing, we haven't done Mr. Show, but I feel like we've been doing like a, a, a little alter, alternate 90s comedy rundown lately. Oh, dear God. Honestly, I've had this bug in my brain about what is it about Gen X comedy that like 
at once feels so comforting and like such a lost art form and also what makes it sometimes hard to return to. Um, but I will say, uh, besides just like the grainy eight millimeter uh, home video, you know, home camera footage in the interstitials, besides the grungy surf rock of shadowy men on a shadowy planet going throughout, besides uh, the kids in the hall's own kind of like above it all. Uh, just like everything's fucked. Everyone's dumb in their own ways. Our parents suck. The suburbs suck. Um, but the kids in the hall more so than I feel like a lot of the other Gen X comedy things that we've uh, touched upon really, truly holds up. Like, you know, whether or not you like, hell no, even if you watch it on Amazon, they now censor all the F slurs. <laughs> like, uh-huh. uh, but like there is in fact a real empathy for the people they cover a lot of times, whether it is the uh, beleaguered housewife getting yelled at because her ham was too salty or the, uh, the like you said, the secretaries, the uh, corporate peons, just, just so there's something really pure and beautiful about kids in the hall sketches that uh, on top of the silliness, on top of the irreverence, on top of that, like, you know, just like fuck the hipsters, fuck the posers, fuck the cops, fuck everybody. They really do have like a heart to them that I think makes them truly special. Of, yes, and, of course. Yeah. And I think more so than yeah, what I'm what I'm trying to say is we've covered a lot of Gen X comedy lately, and I've had like my my weird little like uh like, oh, this doesn't hold up. Like there's something about where you know what it is? A lot of Gen X comedy. Like the go-to Gen X punchline is always like yada da 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 on crack or like na 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 hookers uh-huh. and in a more enlightened lens it's like why is people addicted to crack cocaine funny or like why is someone being forced into sex work funny like and the kids in the hall definitely have a defter hand with the subjects they cover where they actually give a shit and i found it really refreshing and it really really holds up even the old stuff yeah for sure for sure also did you see did you see the doctor and me did you see <laughs> sometimes it's dark um i'll just i'll just keep quoting it but yeah i i'm so excited to do the episode today the kids in the hall If you didn't know, a Canadian sketch comedy troupe formed in 1984. They got a series on HBO that ran from 1989 to 1995, as well as a film in 1996 titled Brain Candy, and more recently had a revival season of their show in in 2022 on Amazon Prime. Uh, And Death Comes to Town, before that, in 2011, they did. I watched one episode of it. It seemed really funny. I watched three, probably uh, of everything, probably the lowest on the, the rung in terms of the 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 kids in the hall stuff that I've enjoyed, but still it's like, but that's like not giving enough justice because it's very strong. Yeah. Uh, it's just uh, you know in comparison uh, to some other stuff. Uh, I'll I'll also um, what was I going to say? I totally forget now. Well, either way, let's get into it. Great live. They they tour live. They do solo shows occasionally. Yeah. They do group shows, and it is always a fun time. Yeah, it's an interesting thing where they all ended up doing some stuff. After kids, you know, for sure. But at the end of the day, like, it's definitely one of those situations, like, they cannot quit each other. Like, they really yeah. cannot. It is really. And the thing, actually, I was, I just remembered, I was going to say, um, it just that 
You also have to realize, like, yes, the show ran on HBO 1999 That is not where I saw the show. Mm-hmm. This show picked up so much traction as a rerun on Comedy Central in the middle of the day, which I watched religiously for a while. And that was back when Comedy Central, kids, gather around, let me tell you a tale <laughs> about Comedy Central. Comedy Central actually showed a bunch of, like, classic comedy content S, like 70s and 80s, 90s episodes of, of uh, SNL, Kids in the Hall, you know, absolute, old comedy specials. Fabulous out of uh, Britain, you know, you just had all of the, yeah, old special, stand up specials. And, you know, on top of like Daily Show South Park, it was mm-hmm. this mecca for a comedy nerd in the 90s and um, early 2000s. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We talked about this at the last uh, production meeting over on the uh, Patreon study group, but how do you feel about a January Comedy Central month? I feel like we could pull it off. I mean, I think it could be cool. I mean, I think that there's easily, you know, we already did South Park. We we, we mm-hmm. are, but but yeah, the uh, Daily Show might be interesting. And, uh, you know, there's, of course, there's tons of stuff. And, and of course, even the, and the stuff they re-ran as well. So, yeah, I think that... I think that'd be great. I just, it, uh, the problem is it'll make me so sad because MTV and Comedy Central <laughs> used to be such fun fucking TV networks to watch. And now they mm-hmm. both are so Boro Snorro in terms of their output. And uh, it, it is, it is a bummer, but let's get into it. Uh, let's, let's, let's introduce all of the kids, shall we? I think mm. that's the best way to, to kind of dance around their final, you know, formation uh, in Toronto. Uh, we'll start with Bruce McCullough. Bruce McCullough grew up in Edmonton, later Calgary. He had a rough childhood. Uh, so I mean, for this one before you haven't yet, but you're about to hear it four yeah. more times. Um, uh, yeah, he had a rough childhood. His father was a bad alcoholic. His mother left the family at a certain point. Uh, so Bruce McCullough ends up turning to punk music, actually not comedy at first as an escape in his teen years. McCullough said, McCullough said, I walked the streets and sat in the bars of Calgary as a young man, knowing there was something special about me. I never thought my way out was going to be rock music. When I finally encountered comedy, I felt like a gay man coming out of the closet. I found my thing. And while at Mount Royal University in Calgary, he joins a sketch comedy troupe called The Audience, which is where he meets Mark McKinney. Mark McKinney's childhood, quite different. He's... He's the happy one. Yeah. He's the easy-go-lucky, the diplomat's son. Yes. The one that when normal people have to talk to kids in the hall, the first question they ask is, can we talk to Mark? <laughs> ha. 
Yeah, he he uh, he traveled a lot his, his, due to his father being a diplomat. He eventually ends up in Calgary, and he's performing comedy at the Loose Moose Theater Company. McKinney said, The Loose Moose Theater was a theater in Calgary that myself and Norm Hiscock, one of the eventual kids in the hall writers, went and saw when we were 20 years old and trying to find a way to write comedy. You could have a theater sports team and be on stage the next week if you signed up, and I would never have been able to think my way on stage. It had to be like that. Well, we're doing it. Oh, are we? I would have been too self-conscious. I have too strong a belief in orthodoxies and systems and stuff like that. Too much of a waspy respect for law and order and meritocracies and hierarchies. You know what I mean? I would have tried to find my way nimbly through them. I'm much, much better when I'm forced into a reaction or a un- or an unselfconscious choice. This is one of the things that gets me about these early uh, origin stories of the kids in the hall is that like all of them have this story of like a wayward youth or like a, a, a directionless kind of void in their heart that was filled specifically by early 80s comedy sports style short form improv. Yeah. Because like we grew up in like the the ascension of the UCB era. You probably took a couple of like long form improv classes, probably did a Herald or two where it was all about like organic and, you know, find the beats and find the game and bring it around and make it human. Uh, They're talking about literally like whose line is it anyway shit where it's like, all right, now I need a a profession and a location. And when I say freeze, you have to hold still and I'll tag you like real like corny shit. I was always modern standard. I was always more drawn to improv sports than the like Herald thing. I was I Mm. loved that. I loved that kind of structure to to force out really fun moments and stuff like that. But I will also say this about his talk about meritocracies and hierarchies. That's, I think, a weird thing about a lot of people getting into comedy and why they're so drawn to the UCB system. They need that. Like, comedy, at the end of the day, you really, um, and what I found with Murder Fist in college and why we kind of balked at the UCB system and any kind of place that had a system like that was like, we were like, fuck it, let's just do it in the, you know, the first show I did was in the parking lot of my apartment complex. We like built a, a, we just pulled couches out of our apartments for the audience to sit in. We, you know, it was just so DIY. And that's the beauty of, of comedy, you know, and a lot of things like it, you know, whereas, but also people have this weird innate need to give it some kind of a corporate feeling. It's like, a very, maybe yeah. it's just a very capitalist thing at the end of the day, but it's like, no, 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 I need a older guy to say yes to me and then put me in level one and then let me, you know, and then say I can move on to level two and I give them money for this to happen. You know what I mean? It's like, that mm. makes that makes the world make sense. Uh, so I really, I really resonate with his, with his dialogue. Well, the audience is our old man in yeah. that case. But uh, as it, I mean, the kids in the hall, if we get into it, do have a series of like paternal figures that they are yes. eager to please it's at true. the end of the day. Uh, of Bruce McCullough, of Bruce McCullough early on, McKinney said, Bruce and I kind of hit it off, but we did. We kind of didn't. We would get in arguments. I remember Bruce screaming at me on stage when I was rehearsing a sketch he thought was going too long. It was all ego stuff. And there's the introduction of infighting, which happened quite a lot. This is, you know, I think a lot of times you see a, a silly comedy group like this, and you think they're all just like silly, fun guys all the time. But they took this very silly thing very, very seriously. And oh God! There were 
were tons. And I mean, it got nasty by the end. And that's another element of brain candy we'll have to get into. But it, it got really rough by the end. But no, no, they were very stubborn, very argumentative about what should happen, what should go and what shouldn't. And uh, it, it uh, was incre- incredibly contentious at times, for sure. I was listening to a interview. uh I think I, I I was listening to an interview with Bruce McCullough and, you know, this was very recently during his uh, Amazon Prime years. And he talked about how when they were making Kids in the Hall, they literally would just like have these weird lines in the sand where like Bruce McCullough was like, no repeat characters, only hacks do repeat characters. And he regrets it now because like. Why do you think your comedy standards are so hard line? <laughs> <sighs> okay. Um, right. Um, in 10 minutes, the uh, Spectrum guy, uh, uh, this is a surprise to everyone, a Spectrum guy is going to cut the internet in 10 minutes for like tw- for like oh, 20 minutes. Okay. Yeah, fuck. yeah. It's what a cursed episode. This is so crazy. This is truly cursed. Bruce McCullough talked about like, how, you know, you you build all these, like, lines in the sand over what real comedy is and what you can and can't do without without uh, resorting to hack. And that as an older man, he now realizes that is a very silly thing. And if it makes you laugh, it's funny. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So you've got, all right, so we've got, we've got uh, uh, Bruce McCullough and Mark McKinney in the scene. The two, uh, the two later moved to Toronto. Uh, for McCullough, it was largely due to the punk scene there. He said, for me, Toronto was the place where the Damned and the Villatones played. That was part of it, too. My best friends moved out to Toronto before me for musical reasons. It was natural for me. I saw opportunity. Mark wanted to check out Vancouver, then check out Toronto. And I was like, no, we're moving to Toronto. Uh this is where we bring in Dave Foley into the picture. Dave Foley was a high school dropout that went to Toronto to try his hand at stand-up comedy and acting by honing his chops at the Toronto Second City Training Center. I started doing stand-up at Yuck Yucks as a teenager. Then I took Second City classes. At my first uh, at my first class, I met Kevin McDonald. We were paired up by our teacher to do the mirror exercise, which is lame, but he made me laugh all the way through class, then asked me to join his gr- uh, troupe with Luke Casimiri. McDonald also hooked him up with a job as an usher at an art house theater where he got some early work. And by the way, these lines drawn in the sand continue for their entire career. It's Bruce McCullough and Mark McKinney (laughs) is a team, and Mm -hmm. Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald is a team uh, within the group. I will say, I find the friendship between Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald to be very endearing. It is very similar to a lot of the friendships I've had uh-huh. in my life where like uh, maybe one is a little bit uh, nerdier and right. sillier and uh, kind of a goofball and kind of a weirdo. And the other one is a little bit cooler, a little bit slicker. Obviously, in our friendship, Holton, it's a reverse this time around. And I find it very <laughs> refreshing. But uh, the ways that like Kevin McDonald talks about like, uh, you know, just that they're the core of their comedy, they basically refer to it as neo vaudeville, something like the Citizen Kane sketch, where it's just about the patter and the how did hacha cha cha between them and how lightning fast they are with each other is like more my style of comedy. It's more what I would end up doing if I was in a comedy troupe. And uh, the ways that they kind of uh, have their highs and lows, I found like a little bit heartbreaking when reading about their story together. For sure. 
So let's bring in Kevin McDonald full on. All right. Kevin McDonald seemed to suffer through a similar childhood to Bruce McCullough. I mean, this is very, very tragic stuff. His mom did, though, at least leave his drunk father. uh, uh, But it wasn't until Kevin was 19. But at least she took the family with her to a small apartment. At this point, uh, uh, his old man was up to two bottles of vodka a day. Kevin, along with his sister and mom, would go over to their old house every day after his dad would be inevitably passed out on the steps, and they would slowly move things <sighs> out of his of his apartment into their new one uh, to get out of there. That is the that I mean, we're talking fucking tragic. If you want a good example of this father figure, just uh, watch that scene in Brain Candy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> where Kevin McDonald plays the gun by any chance. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, there's yeah. a great uh, thing in um, uh, the comedy punks documentary that Amazon released as part of their ramp up to the season that they did as uh, uh, last year where uh, Kevin actually just breaks down that the uh, king of broken promises sketch where uh, he's working in a supermarket and just keeps like amping up the things that he'll do for his coworker. Like I'll bring you a bottle of scotch. I'll bring you a copy of the Godfather. And like, he just doesn't (laughs) deliver on it. He's like, that is based on a real thing. Dave noticed about me because when you grow up with an alcoholic father, you just instantly want to people please. And that leads to Mm. a lot of just quick over promising. Yeah. There's also, there's also a drunk dad sketch that uh, where Bruce McCullough plays the drunk dad, but it's also based on, I think both of their fathers were the, a boy, gets uh, taken by his dad from his own birthday party out to the middle of a field, and the dad then proceeds to drink an entire bottle of whiskey and give him, quote-unquote, uh, life advice. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's just, uh, it's it's inherent in the work. The, the, a, tr- a troubled, broken home scenario, alcoholism, all that good stuff, it, it's, it's, all, it's all in there. Bruce McCullough said, We all come from troubled childhoods. A lot of our dads, mine included, were alcoholics. We exploded from the suburbs saying, fuck this shit. I guess that's what people connected with. There is that outsider thing, which is still what we're doing now. There are a lot of us out there who think family isn't such a good thing. Mm. Uh, and, And it's definitely this chosen family vibe that I think a lot of people connect with, which I didn't even realize while getting really into their stuff that that was definitely something drawing me to them. I also had stuff like that going on at home. I also had, you know, a feeling like uh, a hatred towards suburbia and mundanity and wanting to see what else was out there and, and you know, this whole punk kind of thing, you know. I, th- I think it really connected with a lot of people. But I love that it's not on its face like, we're punk rock, we wear jean jackets with patches on them, and we scream about the government. No, they're, they're, it's all like it's all inherent in what they're doing, but not like so face forward, and it comes off wonderfully. Like, maybe way. once in a while, Bruce McCullough, in a sketch or two, will show off his like old bar fighting punk rock days in a character. But the rest of the boys are just comedy nerds. They're just little yeah. soft weirdos that just had totally. shitty dads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Kevin McDonald also uh, close to my own heart in this way. He was kicked out of acting school and college for being solely a comic actor, but a teacher did tell him about Second City in Toronto on his way out. Uh. And that is where uh, he met Dave Foley and a guy named Luke Casimiri. Mm -hmm. And the three of them started up a sketch group called... The Kids in the Hall. Luke Casimiri, who, of course, uh, since left the group before they uh, became the Kids in the Hall that kind we know. Kind of the Pete Best. Supposedly, uh, yeah. he developed an intense form of stage fright that just, like, mm. put him off performing. And uh, he's since went on to become a writer. He's doing fine. But, uh, yeah, it's the Kids in the Hall. Uh, both a uh, winking nod to their, like, affable nature as opposed to, like, the rough kids that you'd have to like shuffle past on your way to the bathroom, as well as a reference to uh, during the days of the Sid Caesar show. Very yeah, let famous. Me hear, this is the the Luke Casimiri quote. Uh, I was I was gonna say oh. here. Kids in the Hall was my name. We co- were called the Mixed Nuts uh, with <laughs> oh, a Z. Awful, awful. Yeah. A producer at Global told us about how Sid Caesar used to have gag writers who were waiting to feed lines to him, and they were called Kids in the Hall. But there was this double meaning in school, the bad kids get sent to the hall. So mm. that was where they came up with it. Sid Caesar Hour, by the way, was like proto-sketch comedy. It was like the the original foundation Your show of sketch show, comedy. Literally Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, like the actual fundamental. Woody Allen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Crazy. The uh, uh, and, yeah. and what was I, I? Did you say it before what was the name of uh, McCullough and McKinney's? Uh... The audience, and as luck would have it, uh, Kids of the Hall were booked uh, on a late night show along with another group, and that was the audience. Dave Foley said everyone thought there'd be competition between their group and our group, an East uh, Coast West the... Coast Canada right? comedy beef. But after the show, Dave Foley said. We thought we should all be doing shows together. We merged that week. I, and it's also, by the way, the whole joke of that is, ladies and gentlemen, the audience. Yep, that's, and uh, it was very gets. I'm already sick of it, and I've never, I've heard it out <laughs> loud twice. Uh, Bruce McCullough said, we started working together with a bunch of people, like 10 people, and then eventually it was just the four of us. Everybody else went away, and at that point, we just kept doing shows. People would come in and out, but we sort of looked up, and it was just the four of us. But then, uh, Bruce McCullough goes on to say, we only became a truly integrated entity when the ferocious Scott Thompson arrived. Uh, so the uh, If anyone's ever wondered, why are there no women in the kids in the hall, uh, they testified that they tried. Lord knows they desperately wanted mm-hmm. to have someone uh, in the audience, like in the group that could like bring that perspective. And it's just the comedy scene in Canada with Second City, SCTV and Saturday Night Live all just like popping off at the same time uh, meant that anyone who was funny enough and like talented enough immediately got 
paid work elsewhere as soon as they joined the group. Well, specifically Second City. Yeah. Apparently Second City would headhunt every single time they got a, a funny lady to join them in the group. Second City would headhunt them because oh. really funny sketch and improv performer, female sketch and improv performers was a bit of a rarity at the time. And so uh, it would always, they would always be picked off. And of course, Second City was so coveted to get like regular work there that, you know, they would immediately ditch the kids for for such prestigious fare. So their tradition of uh, playing the female characters themselves, uh, which then became one of their calling cards, was born out of necessity. So Scott Thompson also got kicked out of his acting school <laughs> at York University. Thompson said, I was kicked out of theater, but I got a fine arts degree. And I think it was probably the best thing for me. It gave me a lot of anger. I'll show you. You can't really underestimate how important that is. And uh, I also got kicked out of acting school. And yes, it gave me this big old fire in my fucking ass to uh, make something happen um, without the structure of college. Then Thompson met the rest of the kids. I was going to be a theater actor, a real actor. Then I met them. I went to a midnight show with the poor Alex with my friend Darlene and was just blown away. I remember being in the audience and they had donuts taped under the I love this story. Later, and I found the donuts and started whipping them on stage. I just needed them to know I existed. I wanted to send them a message that I was soon to be in that troupe. Imagine there his opening salvo is ruining one of their bits and literally heckling them by chucking donuts at them. I know, and I I believe it was Mark McKinney who was kind of the first person to really back Thompson to work with them. Just they because had uh, worked think, together on a comedy troupe. Uh, yeah, yeah, and he loved his his fearlessness, mm. his his absolute you know uh, determination to get get that attention and do whatever he needed to do to be compelling to look at on stage. And uh, Thompson did that thing where he just kept showing up, too. He just kept being there and ended up doing little stuff with them until he was a full-fledged member. Bruce McCullough said, We still joke that we never officially made him a member of the troupe, but obviously he is. We were pretty funny, but he's the only showman in the troupe. Mm. Thompson said, I thought about character. Sketch is usually so caught up in caricature. Uh, so that's something I brought. That and a bag of wigs. <laughs> so here they are, now fully formed. They are they are the kids in the hall, and they're immediately this rebellious troupe because at the time in Toronto, there were really only two places to be doing comedy, two comedy houses at least, that is. And that was the Second City. Both alike in dignity yes. in fair yes. Toronto where we lay our seat. Twer Second City <laughs> and Yuck Yucks. <laughs> Fucking Yuck Yucks. God. <laughs> We've performed at our fair share of uh, unfortunately named oh, yeah. comedy venues, but it's still, oh, yeah. it's so still, funny. what's what's worse? Like some place called like the Giggle Emporium or like Haw Haws. Like it's You're so, right. ugh. But uh, yeah, Bruce McCullough said, then there was some weird fringe stuff going on at the Rivoli. Brianne Nazamok, who uh, was curating this sh a show, we sort of took it from him and uh, and made it our own, which was a prick thing to do. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin McDonald said, we always felt like underdogs. That's our common bond. When we first started as a stage troupe, we'd uh, get better when we hired directors we didn't like. We could all meet after rehearsal and talk about how much we didn't like them. We got stronger when it was us against them. I don't know if that's a positive thing that makes your life happier, but it definitely led to success for the crew. 
Then for two years, they were playing to like 10 to 15 people a week every Monday night and were not considered the cool kids. And this is, by the way, new material weekly. That's a lot of work. Writing and putting up new sketches uh, at that rate. I mean, it's essentially what enabled them to do like, you know, five seasons, Mm -hmm. uh, several, several episodes a season, you know, because they got used to that kind of output. Whereas a lot of sketch groups I found uh, in my experience, but I think in general back then is probably even more so with the comedy boom. A lot of sketch groups would rely on the same set of material for a year, Mm -hmm. two years. I mean, you would come back and be like, you guys still doing the same shit? What is going on? I mean, having seen a lot of sketch groups that do pride themselves on a fast turnover material, sometimes you just get a lot of weird shit that isn't that funny. (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) This is true, too. uh, Uh, But I think what you're going to talk about is like they really picked up steam when they started doing best of shows. Yes, yeah. Mark McKinney said, we were on the verge of breaking up because nothing much had happened. We were having fun, but couldn't get people to show up. Then, in March of 84, we thought we'd do a best-of show. The Rivoli, God bless them, gave us three or four nights in a row, and on a weekend, suddenly, it was on. And it just so happened that they got a glowing review in a Toronto paper the day SNL talent scouts were in town to check out the current the current mm-hmm. uh, crew at the Second City. And so the scouts saw the article and said, fuck it, let's go check out this other show as well. Bruce McCullough said, when someone tells our history, it's always, oh, Lorne Michaels discovered us and we got a show. But they, they forget the nine months of pain previous to that. The bullet points make it sound like everything happened fast, but every hurdle we got over, we just got over it. Our bellies were hitting the hurdle, yeah. which is a great, great way to describe it. I mean, they really, really just barely made it uh, uh, to television. And that's how it happens. With the help, help of Lorne Michaels, the Kids in the Hall airs on CBC in Canada whoa, and HBO whoa. in the U.S. There's like yep, a it's ton. That easy, Jake. It's, it's tons that of things that happen. That you're making fun of that. You were making fun of the idea <laughs> that Lauren Michaels just showed up smoking a cigar being like, yeah, that's, that's a really good. Yeah, we can use it. You know, famously, you. they did like a like a showcase show and it was like a, they bombed, right? OK, so the series of events are first the SNL scouts do see the kids, but I they only take like Mark and Bruce and uh, Scott and uh, Dave and Kevin kind of just like keep the show going at the Rivoli for months without them. Um, It's not quite working out. Like everybody's like kind of like, you know, they're not getting uh, in New York. They're not getting sketches on, on screen Uh, in Canada. They're like on the verge of quitting. And at some point, Lauren gets the idea that like, no, what they are together is special. I can work with this. I want this to work. I am, of course, Canada's favorite comedy uh, kingpin, and I want to represent Canada as a hotbed of innovative comedy. I can work with these guys. And he flies all of them to New York for, uh, I believe it's like seven or eight months. He pays them weekly in cash for them to pay their rent. um, And they just start doing shows up and down New York. Uh, They're trying to build up hype for the group get them more accustomed to American audiences, get them less reliant on Canadian-based material and Canadian references. And uh, at one point, they actually get to do an HBO showcase, and it's uh, a massive disaster. It's 1987, and 
Uh, turns out, uh, <laughs> um, sketches like running Efsler, farmers on heroin, <laughs> and Brian's bombshell uh, aren't really uh, uh, sticky for an audience of politically charged uh, AIDS ravaged 1987 uh, showbiz executives. Like they just are not dealing with like they're just they just can't quite make it work. They keep going back there again and again, trying different like uh, sets of material, still working on shows, still trying to build up an audience, still trying to like get their chops together. It's not until McCullough or McKinney uh, remembers that they're friends with a uh, muckety muck over at the CBC. I believe that's a Canadian broadcasting company. Ivan Fecan, who uh, offers to co-produce with HBO on a sketch show. And uh, the deal is basically CBC will produce, uh, you know, they'll provide the crew, they'll provide the studio space, they'll actually finance the show, and HBO will get, like, simulcast rights as the episodes are aired. And that is the deal that nails them the show. Uh, They are already uh, down on their pilot funds because they – all the back rent that (laughs) uh, Lorne Michaels, like – paid them uh, is taken out of the pilot's budget, but they have this massive well of material uh, and all of them had just been like partying hard and like drinking nonstop and just live, you know, like living that uh, crazy young New York alt comedy dream. And now they have to actually bring it together. And that is when the pilot is finally produced and the show gets made. Yeah. It runs from 1988 to 1994 and um, uh, in true punk rock fashion, they were constantly going up against the censors, uh, more so in Canada. Bruce McCullough said, I remember Scott getting upset that we couldn't show Calm on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the stuff of life, uh, he's quoting uh, Scott Thompson. Yes, Scott, but we still can't show it on TV. <laughs> you wanted to show a load on TV. Uh, but there was always a lot of stuff going on, buttonheads with that, of course. Um, They were doing so many things we already mentioned, but I want to delve more into that was really like very, very new for the times and very like, you know, pushing boundaries. First of all, the portraying women. Yeah, uh, you know they they were doing these very genuine, earnest approaches of female characters in full drag. Mark McKinney said Scott sort of crystallized the way we do these real three dimensional characters. He had a big influence on the way we played women, which is it's not a comment. You don't comment on women. We didn't have women in the troupe, but we have girlfriends and wives and sisters and moms and stuff. So we're just going to play it straight as well. It seemed like an interesting ethic. Dave Foley said the drag came just out of necessity. We couldn't get any women to stay in the group, as we already mentioned before. So they they leaned into this, but it became like their thing. You know, I mean, it yeah. became such a big part. Of, when you think about like if you were to describe the kids in the hall that that is definitely um, an element that would be thrown out there outside of like the well-known characters that they didn't repeat a a whole lot. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, Also, their portrayal of uh, the LGBTQ community is especially their portrayal of the the with the Buddy Cole character. Uh, which was played by Scott Thompson, one of the one of the more reoccurring characters actually on the show. Like that was a a monologue from Buddy Cole was actually ma- probably the most reoccurring 
character they had. Uh, I believe so. Thompson said, for a gay man from my generation, everything was about hiding. Everything was about proving that you were a man and that you weren't a F slur. Everything was about acting. I was working very hard to hide all of the things inside of me that gave away to the world that I was gay. Because for my generation, it was absolutely deadly to be known as gay. Either you'd be beat up or you'd die of AIDS. So for me to do Buddy Cole was a very political act. But, I, but it came from a very simple thing. I fell in love with a guy who was very much like Buddy, a very effeminate man who was, had a wicked wit. And at the time, I was so surprised because I had so many hang-ups about my masculinity and all of that stuff. So I was quite amazed that I would fall for someone that was so effeminate because his uh, queeniness was so powerful. He owned it. He didn't back down from anyone. And unfortunately, uh, I mentioned before that he died of AIDS uh, rather not, not long after uh, Scott... Uh, started seeing him and after his death Thompson would just imitate him for stuff when he was performing at Second City apparently he would do the character for uh, parts that were given to him that were not at all written that way (laughs) and uh, they'd be like why are you doing it like that and he was like because this is how I'm fucking doing it he was that kind of guy like he got he got uh, uh, booted from Second City pretty quickly I think for stuff like that Scott Thompson said For me, the ultimate goal is to write or do something that cuts through all of that crap that separates us. That's what I love most about comedy. That's what I think comedy does is hold the light up to the darkness and it holds the light up to the silliness and things that we try to pretend aren't there. But comedy won't look away. I knew that when I talked in that kind of a voice, it made people listen because people are conditioned to take that voice not seriously. People don't take feminine men seriously and they think they're figures of fun. Particularly in my generation, all gay characters were basically ridiculed. And the difference with Buddy is he ridiculed. Nobody ridicules Buddy Cole. <laughs> Fucking love that. Uh, I, I I think it's such a special. So where does character. Thirty Helens agree? You can't pay too much for a good pair of shoes. Align <laughs> with the uh, truth and darkness. I don't. <laughs> I, that's what I love is, and then Bruce McCullough brings this total irreverence to to the group. He brings this kind of like I hate to say random with a zero because it's it's more curated than that. But he brought this like total. Just ridiculousness, silly, absolute silliness that you that you got to throw into the pot to create the whole thing. If it was all Buddy Cole, I don't think it, that it would work. You know, <laughs> you kind of needed to have these like all these different things thrown in to 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 make this like amazing, unique show experience. You know, or like squash your head guy, right? Oh, I mean, it's just- I'm sorry, you said squash, and I immediately thought of one of my favorite. Uh, Kids in the Hall characters, the Eradicator. <laughs> uh, you can unmask me, you know. It's your right as the victor. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bruce McCullough said, we weren't conscious of what we were doing. There's a great time in young artists' lives when they're just writing stuff and they're not analyzing it. I think later when journalists would talk about our material, it fucked us up a bit because it made us understand our methodology and what our themes were. I think we just had to do what we had to do. And uh, yeah, the weird and the meta is another very much what we were just Uh getting into, very much a big part of it, you know. Bruce McCullough also said, I think a lot of the surreal stuff was my hand. I wanted to get weirder. I love surreal. For a while, the pendulum swung too far that way. Oh, yep. And they He's he's talking about love and sausages. I feel the most... Uh, the easiest to point to when you want to showcase kids in the hall at their most uh, esoteric excesses, yes. I'd say. 
Yes. Just I still have nightmares of Scott Thompson just banging on the table, just being like, sausages, sausages, yeah. sausages. And it's definitely kind of as the show goes on, they kind of get weirder, weirder. Some of them are a little more regretful of that uh, <laughs> turn by the end. It's like a little, almost a little too much. Uh, they also love to dissect comedy and get super meta. Uh, Kevin McDonald was kind of the forefront of that part of things. Oh my God. There's a great sketch where like it starts with like an Abbott and Costello semi vaudeville thing where like a gorilla terrorizes two like uh, electricians, I believe. And then just they, it, you know, Kevin McDonald takes the head off, talks about like uh, ecological devastation in the Congo and how like, you know, uh, in the time this sketch went, uh, ran, uh, two mountain gorillas were killed. In fact, if this sketch goes any longer, even more gorillas will die. <laughs> so, you know, maybe you'd be a little nicer to me or else the more gorillas are going to get it and this sketch <laughs> is going to keep going. <laughs> Kevin McDonald said, I write a ton of meta sketches. I think it's because the meta part of my brain comes from Monty Python and Andy Kaufman and even Steve Martin. He started anti-stand-up. That's the weird thing about Steve Martin. I always think he became an arena comic, but he was sort of making fun of stand-up comedy. Like, when he put an arrow through his head, he was making fun of a comic with an arrow through his head, but it also works because it's also funny to see a guy with an arrow through his head. Oh, there's another great Kevin McDonald. I think Kevin McDonald's my favorite, now that I'm just saying Kevin McDonald, if we want to get into that real quick, Kevin McDonald was my favorite, definitely with a bullet from my childhood. I think it kind of slowly became Bruce McCullough and I makes I, sense. Makes I appreciate sense. Bruce McCullough more. Maybe because I understand Bruce McCullough's influence on me uh, mm. more and more. Uh, but what were you going to say? What was the other uh, one? In the new Amazon Prime season, which I must say for a bunch of 60 year old men, just like incredibly funny. Uh, there's a great meta Kevin McDonald sketch where like Dave Foley's character is trying to sell an old uh, Kevin McDonald sketch and Kevin McDonald as the pawn shop guy is like, oh, it's a Kevin McDonald sketch, huh? His voice gets really high. He starts <laughs> wagging his finger. gets meta at the end. <laughs> like, it's fucking amazing. So, of course, there are, there are too many reoccurring characters to name, but, uh, you know, many stand out. Head Crusher, of course, the dumb cops, the secretaries. Uh, it's Scott Thompson's portrayal of the Queen of England. And, of course, you have the chicken lady played by chicken Mark. Chicken lady? Mark McKinney. Scott Thompson said everybody has their own skill set. And one of Mark's skill sets is that he can play anything. <laughs> He's very care, uh, capable of playing characters that aren't just or that aren't uh, remotely like him. He's just skilled that way. He just got that gift. Kevin McDonald said, in the first series in the 90s, we sort of had an unspoken rule. And I love this. Any sketch had to be good enough to make the show. It didn't matter if it was a head crusher or a chicken lady or a Simon and Hecubus. We would never put it in just because it is a head crusher, chicken lady, or Simon and Hecubus. It had to stand on its own merits. And of course, Lorne Michaels, who is very, very smart, it drove him crazy. Why <laughs> wouldn't you do your hit characters over and over? That's how you'll get more and more seasons. And I don't think we're artists or anything. We just go with the funniest scenes that week. But as a appreciator of comedy, and and I brought uh, a no reoccurring characters rule into my own sketch group because I just I really hated it growing up because I I did uh, not. Like I would argue the uh, 
overweight bearded man who shows up and says fuck a lot is one of Murderfist's most beloved characters. (laughs) I I hated SNL and Mad TV's overuse of reoccurring characters. Oh, God. Intensely bored and frustrated by, by, uh, you know, sketch comedy real estate. I would see Miss Swan on the television and Uh, immediately, like, die for the remote to turn it off. It got so tiresome. Hated it. Or, um... Oh, what's his name? Mango. Was it Mango? Oh, Chris Kattan with Mango. Yeah, Well, it awful. would just be, especially when the premise was a full oh, no, cut and paste. Mango. Oh, you said Mango. I find Mr. Peepers to be infinitely more uh, annoying. Yeah, it, w- it would just be such you a- You know what? I, 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 hold on, let's burn some bridges. Fuck you, Chris Kattan. <laughs> you fucking hack. I you mean, fucking piece of shit, Chris I, Kattan. I truly was not a big fan. Like he was Mr. Reoccurring sca- Character Sketch, you know, on that show. And but yeah, all of it, the cheerleaders. The, even if I found it funny at first, even if I thought it was a great sketch the first time around, I would immediately be just hateful, hateful towards towards it, and not understand why we had to keep bringing the same thing back over and over again. But as um, who said it? As Kevin McDonald s- referred to him uh, as very, very smart. Uh, it, it, this is true. This is how you, you know, can garner like big audiences and stuff, and create mm. these kinds of like legendary, you know, pop culture touchstones that people will then refer to. You know, when, once it becomes like a reference <laughs> in some other conversation. Yeah, it's know. very hard. Like you can't. It's you can't buy a. a um, you can't buy a Funko Pop of Bruce McCullough's beloved character, guy who says weird things very sincerely directly to camera. Right, like, right, right. It's just not as sticky. So after five seasons, the kids were starting to run ragged on a TV show, wanted to branch out both as a group and individually. Bruce McCullough said, well, you're trapped with these people in this little office in this thing called the Kids in the Hall. Even the theme music starts to drive you nuts. It's like being at Disney World and it, with its uh, with it's a small world looping over and over. It's claustrophobic. That theme song, by the way, uh, is uh, called Having an Average Weekend by the Canadian band Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet. Shout outs. That is one of the most iconic theme songs uh, for me. Well, the band would play live at show taping. So like they literally had to hear that song blaring as they make their entrances. So like obviously after so many episodes and hundreds of sketches, like you just you just start hearing and you're just like, I I can't do this. (laughs) Mark McKinney said, when we took the vote on whether we should do a sixth season, I was the only one who shot my hand up like, yeah, come on. Hands up, guys. (laughs) It was uh, apparently McCullough's uh, uh, got a taste for directing because of the filmed uh, sketches that he got to do as part of the later seasons. Uh, Other people wanted to just like. Uh, try out, like, explore other opportunities that they might have had. Yeah, no, it was definitely... uh, And by this point, like you said, all of them had these comedy edicts and, like, Mm -hmm. got less respectful of each other's work. Or, like, were, like, kind of, like, giving each other shit for the things they were bringing to the show. Uh, Scott Thompson basically was on his own by the end, just kind of producing his own little segments. Yeah, it definitely seemed like a contentious situation um, going into Brain Candy. And that is one of the th- another sad thing about Brain Candy. Like, there's a lot of sad things about Brain Candy, which makes sense because yeah. you just wonder, you watch it. And personally, and I feel like Jake joined me on this bandwagon of you, you watch it and you're like, this is great. 
This is like yeah. surprisingly good. Why, especially if you've only popular? heard as if you've only heard of it as a dud, as a famous bad movie. Uh, yeah, it's not. You know, it's not at all. It's a fucking funny as hell, but it just didn't get the love it needed to. Yeah, I mean, we'll explain exactly how it mm. became a flop. It was definitely. It was like a pre-planned flop, and the whole time, it's just tragedy and bitterness and upset feeling. By the with the within the group the entire run, um, so yeah, I mean, of course, Monty Python. They're following the footsteps. The next thing we do after the show, we make a movie, and so they get to work on Brain Candy, released in 1996. But unfortunately, things were coming to a head with the group at the time. There were, and this is so commonplace. Oh my god! I, so just just they went on a retreat with a couple of their writers, and uh, it was like the off season at like a camping ski resort. So like the place was swarming with flies and everybody just had like the darkest fucking ideas. There was like things about a time traveler that accidentally like kills everyone. There's things about uh, depression and nightmares and all this stuff. And it was Mark McKinney that was just out of the blue while they were banging their heads against a wall, just was like Prozac. We'll do a movie about Prozac. And it got everybody's mind going uh, they then went off and made completely separate drafts of their ideas for uh, Brain Candy, which at the time was called The Pill or The Drug. And they brought it back to their writers and was like, all right, put it together. And they're like, we can't do this. <laughs> and uh, it really caused uh, a lot of tensions, uh, just their how slow everything was going, how everybody was cr- overly critical of each other's ideas. Uh, there was uh, Lauren Michaels was like, you guys got to get this going. You got to make this while the iron's hot. The longer you're not on the air, the less relevant you'll be. Which is actually um, funny because they become way more relevant after they yeah. hit Comedy Central with reruns. And that's when they become but much more popular. Basically, Lauren uh, like promised Paramount Pictures, who picked up uh, the movie, they was like, listen, I'm the Wayne's World guy. You guys liked Wayne's World, right? Well, these guys are are funny. Also, these these are the guys that Mike Myers wishes he was as funny as. So, like, you're you know, you gotta get this going. And Paramount Pictures was not eager. Mm. They like they saw this show. They understood that it was a different beast than like SNL recurring characters, and they were not excited. So, Lauren was like, while all this is happening, and they're like struggling with who they are and their relationship to each other. Lauren Michaels is just like constantly badgering them. Like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Let's get going. Let's get going. Yeah. And within the group, they have all these roadblocks. One of the big one is Dave Foley ends up getting news radio, a sitcom, a lead. He canceled a a live show. He canceled a live show to do uh, audition and do the pilot. And that was like a huge betrayal in their eyes. They were like really upset at that. Scott Thompson said, and this will really give you the info dump here. In the period of a month, Dave's marriage broke up. One of Kevin's parents died and my brother committed suicide. I was pretty much in shock. My brother died literally a week before we started shooting. All those things uh, conspired to make it a dark 
time. Bruce McCullough said, By the time we got to making brain candy, we were exhausted. Our creative cracks were getting larger. We lacked appreciation of ourselves and each other. We didn't realize how protected we were by the TV show. When you do a movie, there are more people involved, financiers, writers, and rewriters. It was a terrible time for us. We had a lot of pain. It was hard to make that movie. I feel that when I watch it now. And Dave Foley oh. ends up straight up quitting the troupe. Uh, I- okay, this story is insane. Uh, the, it, this entire meltdown is like covered blow by blow in the book Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy. Um, so after a last minute session to try and get the movie together, uh, Dave Foley is like incredibly frustrated because his career is going well. And he actually just put together a uh, script for a starring vehicle for himself with a bunch of SNL writers. And compared to how the kids operated, it was beautiful. He could like incorporate his ideas. Like things got done on a professional time frame. like all the accommodations and all the tiptoeing was gone. So he like saw this like beautiful exit and, uh, Kevin McDonald, you know, his longest friend, his oldest, longest friend in the group uh, started feeling uh, spited by him. In the book, he, McDonald says he was definitely jealous of uh, Foley's success with news radio and that, you know, he felt like maybe like this was it for them. And he was like scared of that happening. But Kevin McDonald, uh, during after a contentious round of, of uh, script writing, uh, goes home, writes an angry letter about his hurt feelings presents it to Dave the next day and says, I need you to read this out loud. And Dave says, no. And Kevin doesn't let it go. Dave says, if you tell me to read that letter one more time, I am leaving the group. Kevin tries to call his bluff. And Dave just looks around the room, says, it's been great, guys. I'm out. The entire movie is now thrown into complete disarray because Paramount needs all five of them to make it. That was part of the deal. Uh, they won't even get paid to for the time they spent writing the screenplay. And Lauren Michaels tells the group, hey, Paramount's definitely out. If you sign this thing, they'll like the deal will be done and you can just get paid and we can figure out something else out. But Dave has to sign too. That's like the deal. And so they, you know, they tell Dave, hey, it's just this weird little formality. We were, you know, we understand you're out. Like just this, just do this one thing for us. Dave signs it, and then Paramount looks at the contract and goes, oh, great, all five of them are in. Uh, we'll produce the movie. And Dave feels incredibly tricked by this. Mm. He feels, I believe there was a threat, if not an existing lawsuit, between the members over this. And Dave presents a series of ultimatums for his involvement. Uh, he is not going to be working on set any longer than contractually obligated. He is not going to uh, be doing any promotion for the movie. And uh, he refuses to do drag. This pisses off Scott, who thinks that uh, his new Hollywood managers are trying to make him seem less queer and like hoping and making sure that his image is more straight and is like calling him a coward over this. Kevin is still mad about this. Yeah. Dave uh, is can't was originally supposed to be the lead role in the movie and is now like you only see him in a couple of scenes and his lines are very like his character is very terse. But also Dave is just like kind of just getting his job over with yeah. and hates that he has to be a part of this. I mean, for an example, another another anecdote, uh, Scott Thompson and Dave Foley 
And this is kind of what's amazing about their work ethic as well, though. But uh, they the two ended up rewriting that Christmas scene between the Tomps, uh, between Scott Thompson's old lady character and her adult son, played by Foley, her like quote unquote happiest memory. That's really depressing. It's a very funny scene. They wrote that uh, they or they rewrote that scene, riding in a van to set, not talking, and simply by passing a sheet of paper between each other, and still that scene turned out amazing. Uh, you yeah. know, but they literally couldn't even look each other in the eye. Like they, when they do finally meet back up, we'll get there. Like. They both were wearing sunglasses in the middle of the day because they <laughs> literally couldn't look at each other. It was that contentious by the end. And if that wasn't bad enough with the infighting between the group, it got even worse with the battles happening with Paramount. Namely, they were strongly opposed to Bruce McCullough's Cancer Boy character. What? Uh, Yes. He's yeah. on screen for like two minutes. I know, but this is from uh, writer Norm Hiscock. Bruce's argument was that we're making a point, that we're they're misusing this unlucky kid who's got cancer as a poster boy in a weird way. It was all part of the satire, and I don't know how we convinced them, but they agreed to it reluctantly. But this is what they point to as to why the whole movie got completely fucked with marketing. Mm. Though they got the character in the movie... By sticking to their guns, they point to this as to why Paramount massively cut the advertising and distribution for this film. So the movie released in 1996 in 163 theaters and grossed a paltry $3 million in its theatrical run. For comparison, comedies at that time were being released in a 2,000 theaters on average. They got theirs in 163. Apparently, even though it had come out a year before, uh, Ace Ventura uh, beat them in the box office. Jesus. Even though the Ace Ventura sequel, even. It wasn't even the first, mm. it was the sequel. Beat them in the box office uh, during their theatrical run. They did nothing. They promoted it at not at all. They, I mean, hey, you. I, I remember finally hearing about it from comedy nerd friends and seeing yeah. and being able to rent it at like the cool kid video rental store, you know? And it, and it also was on HBO a ton, right? That's how we all found out about it. But we I don't remember it hitting theaters because it didn't. It's like so mm. sad. And again, if you walk away with anything from this episode, I hope it's an interest in seeing this movie. It's so fucking funny. And the whole thing in true brain candy fashion, the whole thing's just on YouTube. So you just yeah, watch you it. Yeah, you can't find it anywhere Yeah, else. you can't find it anywhere else. It's so sad because it deserves better than that. It deserves a better quality streaming than that, for one thing. Definitely watch this movie. It is so fucking funny. And I just will champion this movie. Now that we rewatch it yet again, I feel like I come back to it every like 10 years. And mm. I think it's going to somehow be this bomb that people paint it to be. And it always oh, just shocks God. and delights me with how funny this fucking movie is. I mean, if you know, it also got critically reamed. Uh, it's it, yeah, there was right. like, Ebert. It's classically was a dick about the movie and said it was like, uh, one su- star funny. One star. Uh, <laughs> first line from Roger Ebert. Did somebody forget to push my laugh button before Kids in the Hall brain candy began? Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the thing, too. I'm like, yeah, I feel like you walked in the movie in a bad mood. I feel like it's what that sounds like. Because I don't see, I don't know, I don't get it. We all loved it when we watched it on the study session. It was awesome. Anyways, uh, so, of course, the movie bombs. 
everyone scatters. Foley goes off to news radio. McKinney performs on SNL. McDonald goes off to Hollywood to perform on various sitcoms and voiceover roles. Thompson gets a regular role on The Larry Sanders Show. And McCullough puts out a comedy album and one-man show. Uh, Shout-outs, by the way, to Shame-Based Man. Definitely check that album out. It was a weird um, thing that I found out about through another comedy nerd friend in high school. And I used to play it a lot in my car. Uh, uh, it is really, really fun. And uh, that first track, uh, Grade 8, is a great starter for it. It's a weird, weird, cool, interesting comedy album, for sure. A very unique uh, comedy Mc- album. McCullough also has a uh, surprising career as a director, let it be known. He directed episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Shit's Creek, Trailer Park Boys, and uh, the <laughs> Molly Shannon vehicle, uh, Superstar. Yeah, Superstar, which people love. Superstar is yeah. absolutely another kind of brain candy style. Like, no, 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 it's really good. <laughs> but eventually they do reform a relationship. Foley said, Kevin and Scott were living in L.A. at the time as well. I started calling Kevin up and inviting him over and hanging out with him. We'd go to movies together and became friends again. Then I did the same thing with Scott. Thompson describes this meeting. They're wearing sunglasses in the afternoon. They, 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 you know, it's this very awkward first lunch meeting. But man, even by the end of that, they eventually warmed back up and realized they could still be friends. And the weird thing is they were getting recognized more now. And it's mm-hmm. all because of those reruns on Comedy Central, which is how I really fell in love with Kids in the Hall was in the middle of the afternoon through the summer watching them on a daily basis. And uh, really, really found the show that way. And a lot of people did. And they realized, like, hey, we've still got something here. Like, we are, uh, like, we are, uh, you know, do not need to, you know, continue to turn our backs to this thing. And so in 2000, they reform for a North American tour. And they do so again in 2008. I saw the 2008 reunion show. Oh, I'm it was so jealous. at Times Square. It was fucking hilarious. The front to back. They were incredible. It was such a treat to get to see all these, all the hit characters. All it was just absolutely wonderful. And you know, I think too, they realized like, hey, why don't we embrace these hit characters a little bit more? Why don't we give them a little more love? Mm-hmm. And really did that in these uh, reunion shows. And uh, doing those reunion shows is how they end up. You know, of course, you're spending all this time together. You're all very funny, creative, intelligent people. They start workshopping stuff, and they come up with. This concept for a different kind of show, very, very, uh, um, very uh, uh, inspired by uh, what League of Gentlemen, mm-hmm. a British show about a bunch of crazy characters in a small town, played by all you know a sketch comedy group. Um, also, though, uh, it's very uh, akin to like a Twin Peaks kind of thing, but mm-hmm. very kids and all comedy uh, called Yeah Death Comes to Town, a series that ran in 2010. And it's essentially death literally comes into this small town. It's got a murder mystery vibe. They're all these eccentric characters. And, you know, it's it's all, again, all on YouTube. So it's eight episode season. And uh, I thought it was really cool. I thought it was definitely them branching out and saying, like, can we do kind of um, more than just sketch? Can we do, you know, something that's like a little a little more off the beat path, like still kind of a brain candy thing, but... Well, it was originally a- pitched as a movie, and as their ideas kept uh, growing on each other, that's when it became a miniseries. Also, at the time, while they were filming, Scott Thompson was diagnosed with cancer and was going through chemo for a month. Mm. 
Uh, he was like, his. if you notice, he's bald in the show. Like, uh, it was a really emotional time for all the members, like kind of reinforcing why they've been friends so long and how much they care about each other. And yeah, Scott would go into, eventually go back to Canada to finish recovering from that. And while he's there, he's like, I need to actually give stand-up a real go. And so he ends up diving deep into stand-up comedy uh, after all of that as well. So for their 30th anniversary... The kids do another season of pure sketch comedy on Amazon Prime in 2022. This was very exciting for me. And it's it's really solid. It's, it's so really, really solid. It's, it's crazy to see how much older they've gotten. Oh, yeah. It's awesome to see all these really great cameos from other amazing comedy elites that uh, they pull in that are, of course, like huge fans in their own right uh, doing the show. You know, folks like Fred Armisen, people like that. Um Dave Foley said, the reason we did the narrative show was that for years we always had this sense that we can't go back to doing sketches because we don't want to put ourselves in the position of competing with younger versions of ourselves directly. But when we were doing one of our live shows, we decided to write all new sketches because we were tired of, you know, the audience knowing all the jokes. And we found that we really liked writing sketches. We wrote a bunch of sketches that we thought were as good as anything we had ever done before. And we thought, well, we should try to film these in some way. We thought we'd just film them as individual film pieces when it came close to our 30th anniversary we thought let's see if we can can't put together a tv show and do this those sketches and write some new ones and uh you know the the, the working process is similar they're, they're very very um collaborative extremely collaborative but they now have a less aggressive approach mm. at least when it comes to the uh contentiousness thompson said I don't know if it's changed, but we're just more respectful of each other as human beings. But we're still the same in the same way in terms of the work. We're still ruthless, which is the way that it has to be. But we're definitely kinder to each other as human beings. We've been together since we were kids. But the same dynamics are always there. And a lot of things that drove us crazy about each other back then, now we just say, oh, that's just Mark. No matter who it is, we just say, oh, that's Mark. <laughs> Dave Foley said, the tension is still there, but we're all too tired to act on it. We run out of energy for the fight quicker. It used to be we could carry out a fight for weeks. Now, about 15 minutes in, everybody goes, ah, whatever. <laughs> just so, just the, the case as you get older with this kind of stuff. And uh, it's a really beautiful thing. I mean, uh, I... Um, I can't say enough good things about the kids in the hall and how much they've inspired me. And it's great to finally get to do this episode. Uh, anything else you want to you want to talk about before I do the final quote and everything about the reunion series? Or- I finally uh, tracked down my notes uh, about the previous concepts for Brain Candy that didn't make the cut. Mark McKinney had a concept for a movie called The Asshole, which yes. uh, involved a serial killer going around killing assholes. Uh, Dave Foley's proposal was called. Well, no, and so he has to go undercover as an asshole. <laughs> ah, ah, I see. To to get the serial killer. Yeah, yeah. He's like he's like a uh, uh, undercover cop. Go on. Uh, Dave Foley's proposal was called "Planes Are Crashing," a disaster <laughs> comedy involving a mix-up with air traffic controllers. <laughs> 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 I just needed to stick. So already the the mood was grim with that movie. Yeah, man. I, and I, I'm still, even though, of course, they're dealing with mental health and making a lot of comments about, you know, how happiness is uh, overrated in that movie. But it's still so surprising to find out how dark, truly dark that uh, that time was for everybody involved. Because, again, I do think the product actually... Um, is way better than it ever should have been based on all those circumstances. Um, I guess before we go, it's just 
yeah, these are, they kind of set the stage for what a modern sketch show would be. Without uh, Kids in the Hall, we wouldn't have had the state. I mean, HBO wouldn't have had the hole in their lineup to greenlight Mr. Show with Bob and David if it wasn't for Kids in the Hall going off the air. Uh, even stuff like, you know, Upright Citizens Brigade, the the sketch show, not the school. Uh, Broad City, Key and Peele, like, the idea of a pre-recorded sketch show that was not Saturday Night Live was like that mold was cast. That's I don't think that's a proper blacksmithing term, but that's what I'm going with. The mold was cast. The die was yes, cast. Yes, the fire was fully ironed out. The die is what the... you mold into. Whatever. The die is yeah. cast uh, by kids in the hall. Either way, you know, we're, we're wordsmiths to a certain degree, Jake. And then you just got to say, ah, whatever. <laughs> All right, well, Dave Foley had this to say. I thought it was a pretty nice way to close out. When the five of us are together, we become the kids in the hall. It becomes something that is apart from any one of us. That's why we keep doing it. It's fun and exciting when we're together. It can also become pretty horrible and mean, but we end up laughing more together than we do at any other time in our lives. We also think we're young punks when we're together. When we're not, we feel like these old fossils. And I do think that they there's just something about the magic of the five of them that just it, it, the whole is so much greater than any one part. And uh, they really are something special. I don't know. I like Kevin McDonald. He does a great job voicing the alien on Invader Zim. I really like That's that. True. Uh, That's true. He's really good. Uh, he's great on Phineas and Ferb that one time. I'm not just kidding. Roll. <laughs> well, all right. Thank you so much for joining us on our Kids in the Hall episode. We hope you enjoyed hearing about it as so much we enjoyed researching this one. Uh, I just am so thrilled we finally got around to it. Uh, if you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. For just $5 a month, you get weekly bonus episodes. Jake and I shooting the shit, talking about the video games we're playing, the stuff we're watching, the stuff going on in the news that we find interesting all around nerd culture. Uh, and um, that's over there on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. And again, for $15 a month, you can join us on the Discord for our Sunday study sessions. Recover whatever we're covering. Like we watched Brain Candy uh, this uh, for this episode. Also, also, catch me on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I'm streaming all throughout the week. Um, join me over there, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I think Jake also is over there on Yawn Twitch. Jake? Oh, yeah, you can catch me on Twitch every Thursday night. Uh, it's called the Cartoon Dumpster. It's a uh, rollicking good look at the uh, foibles of animation uh, cartoons past. Uh, if you like uh, stuff like this podcast and Mystery Science Theater 3000, you will have a grand old time. And Holden, don't I do a don't I think we do a show together also. Yes, twitch.tv forward slash LPN TV, baby. Tears of a Clown every Wednesday. Always a blast over there. Check us out 9 p.m. ET at Tears of a Clown LPN TV on Twitch. That's a lot of Twitch, man. All right. And hey, always remember never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and 
starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.